Good morning. It's good to see so many of you guys back. Hope you had a wonderful Christmas and New Year. Uh, welcome to Aletheia Church. Uh, if this is your first time, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, really glad to have you with us here this morning. Uh, parents of elementary school age kids, if you wanted to dismiss, dismiss your kids now uh, to Aletheia Junior, feel free to do so. Our teachers will be back at the, the back doors ready to take them off uh, to their uh, Bible story time and study time together. Uh, for the rest of you guys, um, Go ahead and open up to John chapter 1. You may have noticed in your seat when you came in this morning that there was one of these sitting there. Uh, these are our scripture journals. Uh, they contain the entire gospel of John. And uh, we like to anytime, one of the things we do here at our Lathia Church, we, we think very, very highly of the Bible, of the Word of God. And because of that, uh, we want you to have the Word of God as well, uh, because we believe that God speaks to you through it. And so because of that, uh, we like to give these out anytime we start a new uh, sermon series. Uh, we preach through books of the Bible here. And so if you would just bring these back with you each week, if you're in one of our gospel communities, uh, feel free to bring these with you and just take notes. Uh, they, they'll have the scripture on one side. On the other side, they'll be uh, blank pages for you to take notes and write down promptings of anything uh, that you may be learning, questions you might have, or how the Spirit uh, may be prompting and speaking to you as we open up God's Word and look at it uh, together. And so, uh, I want to take a few minutes before we look at our text this morning. Uh, we're going to be going through the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. Uh, but I want to take a few minutes just to introduce the gospel of John to us so that we have kind of a foundation or a framework to work from as we work through this book together. Um, I've already mapped out um, our time in John. We may be in John for the next 15 years. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, joking, probably more like a year and a half to two years. Um, but as we work through this book together, um, I want us to really approach it from the same standpoint that uh, the, the, the Apostle John does as he, as he wrote it. And so uh, commonly among scholars and uh, church historians and the early church fathers, they attributed the author of this gospel to be the Apostle John, um, or as he's referred to inside of this gospel, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And John is commonly believed to have been the fourth gospel account written um, of the life of Jesus Christ. And John actually differs quite a bit from the previous three Gospels, Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke. And those Gospel accounts are referred to as the Synoptic Gospels. And John's Gospel would not fall into uh, that category because there's a difference of focus between those three Gospel accounts and the Gospel of John. And what I mean by that is the Synoptic Gospels tend to focus more on um, what Jesus' life looked like, what he came, what he did, uh, what happened during his ministry. They're, they're focused on a lot of historical details, and there is a lot of overlap between those three gospel accounts in, in each one. So if you see a story in the gospel of Luke, you're likely to see it in the gospel of Matthew or the gospel of Mark. John tends to have a different focus or purpose in his gospel. John's focus tends to be more about answering the question of who Jesus is instead of what Jesus did. Now, this does not mean that we won't hear and read historical facts about Jesus Christ and what he did in John's gospel, but the focus on them tends to be more about answering the question of who Jesus is rather than what he did and what he came to accomplish. And if you turn over to John chapter 20, we're going to be referencing two verses from John chapter 20 fairly regularly because verse 30 and 31 of John chapter 20, John unveils to us the purpose of why he wrote this gospel account in the first place. Look at verse 30 and 31 with me. He says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that by believing you may have life in his name. We see that John lays it out here, and, I, and I'm going to give you guys a quick breakdown of, of how the, the, the outline of the gospel of John is kind of broken down throughout the gospel. But we see here in verse 30 and 31, John tells us, the reader, and anyone else who's reading this gospel account, I wrote all of this down, not so that you would have a ton of facts about Jesus, so that you would read about what he did. No, I write this gospel account so that you might believe. Believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's the word for Messiah in the Greek, that he is the promised one that God had, had promised Israel in centuries past, that this Jesus who was born of the Virgin Mary, he is God's promised anointed Messiah. And not only that we would believe that he was the Messiah who was promised to the nation of Israel, but that this Jesus is the Son of God in the flesh. And so whether the reader of, God, of, of John's gospel is, is reading this account and coming to believe in Jesus for the very first time, or if you've been a follower of Jesus for years, John's goal is that we would continue to believe and it is written to help us see Jesus for who he really is and to believe in him. And not just believe in him, but that from that belief, knowing that it brings life in his name. And that word life there in the Greek has this idea of abundant life or life more full than what we might even experience and just simply having a pulse and breathing on earth, but that we would truly, truly live that we would know why we are here, that that knowing would bring us hope and that that hope would be not just a hope for the here and now, but a hope for the life that which is to come in eternity. See, John knows that the biggest question any human being is ever going to be faced with in this life is the question of who is Jesus of Nazareth? Who is he really? You know, there, guys, there are so many opinions on that question. And I think it's, it's funny because, you know, you know, 15 plus years ago when I first was confronted with that question in a real way and had to wrestle with that while I was in college, there was this movement inside of academia called the quest to find the historical Jesus, Right? And their goal was to figure out who Jesus really was without all the supernatural things listed in the scripture. And these academics thought that they were just so much smarter than everyone else and that they were doing something that had never been done before was the, the quest to find out who Jesus of Nazareth, devoid of the religion or the supernatural, not realizing that many had done that before them. Thomas Jefferson himself had gone through the gospel accounts and scratched out any references to anything supernatural as he had gone through it. So really, they weren't doing anything new. They were just stealing. But this is what we tend to do as human beings. When faced with the reality of Jesus Christ, we're forced to answer, who is he? And so often, instead of going to God's word and hearing from him on who the Messiah really is, we start trying to answer that question for ourselves. Whether it was like those academics who tried to answer that question on their own, searching on their own through uh, other historical accounts to figure out who Jesus is, whether it's politicians, and it doesn't matter which party they come from, who try to fashion an image of Jesus that fits their own political ideology or agenda, or if you're like the, one of the greatest movies we've ever seen, I can't believe it didn't get an Oscar, but that scene in Talladega Nights, where Ricky Bobby sits at the, at the dinner table, right, with his sons and his, uh, his father-in-law and his wife and his, his partner who, you know, I mean, hilarious movie. I'm not going to go into it, right? As they're trying to figure out which G, who Jesus is really is to them, and they're figuring out, well, I want to worship the baby Jesus, is what Ricky Bobby says. 
You worship whatever Jesus you want, but I like the baby Jesus. And as we dive into the gospel of John, what I want us to see is that Jesus doesn't present himself as someone who we get to try to make or fashion him into. But instead, John in his gospel writes to us to tell us who Jesus is so that we might worship him for who he is, not what we think he might be or what we want him to be. And so John breaks his gospel down into four parts, right? The first one is the prologue. It's kind of like an, an introduction. That's what we'll cover this morning in verses 1 through 18. And then the remainder of John chapter 1 up through chapter 12, we're going to see that John is going to want us to see Jesus through his public ministry. And so he's going to describe to us what Jesus did during his three years of his public ministry on earth and how that unveils to us or reveals to us who Jesus of Nazareth really is. And then once you get to chapter 13, you'll notice a shift in what John is focusing on. And what John wants us to see there is how we see Jesus for who he really is in the Passion Week. Or to put that another way, the time leading up to his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. What does Jesus show us about who he really is during the Passion Week? And then John chapter 21 is an epilogue or kind of like a, a, a bow being tied on the gospel of allowing us to see who Jesus really is and summing up all that John shares with us in his gospel account. And so before I pray here in just a moment, I want to say that we have one goal as we study this book together as a church. And our goal will be, as the body of Christ, to do the exact same thing that John tries to do in writing this gospel. And that's this, to see Jesus for who he really is. The fully divine son of God. The author of of creation and salvation, the sustainer of all things and the king of the world who is currently ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father in heaven so that we might believe in him and have life in his name. Will you bow your head with me as we ask God to make that a reality for us as, as his people studying this book together? Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the revelation that it is to us and the gift that it is to us that you would reveal who you are to us so that we might worship you. God, as we, as your sons and daughters, study the gospel of John together, will you, each and every week that we come in here on Sunday morning and each and every time we head into gospel community, will you allow the words that John wrote to penetrate our hearts, to correct false beliefs, and will you use that to lead us to a deeper love, and worship of you and lead us to life abundant in you. And Lord, will that abundant life be used to lead many others to abundant life in you? And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as we go through the prologue this morning in John chapter one, the kind of what I want us to see is that John introduces to us three kind of characters or people, and he's going to set the stage for helping us to know and understand who each one of these three people uh, are in, in uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. 
And so the first character we're going to look at is who is John the Baptist, or as he's referred to by Jackie and I in passing, JTB. So John the Baptist, JTB, we're going to be looking at who he is. Then we're going to step into this person referred to as the Word. Who is the Word that John is referring to in chapter 1? Another word for that is the Greek word logos. You may have heard that in the past. Who is the Word? And then lastly, there's this third group introduced to us in the center of these 18 verses called the world. And we're going to unpack who the world is. So look at verses 6 through 8 with me. We're going to start there looking at John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Now, I skipped the first five verses of John chapter 1 but there is an introduction to this person called the word or the light and the life in those first five verses. And so uh, it's important to skip that though, because I, I want us to unpack who the Lagos is or who the word is in light of knowing who John the Baptist is. So this person that John is introducing to us is not himself, but actually jo- uh, Jesus's cousin, John the Baptist, as he's commonly called in the Synoptic Gospels. And notice what John says is true about John the Baptist. He says that John the Baptist was a man sent by God to bear witness to the word, to bear witness to the light, to bear witness to the logos. That John the Baptist, although he was maybe a prophet or a great leader or had a wonderful ministry, that he himself was not the light or the word that the people were looking for that he was a wonderful uh, evangelist, that he was a wonderful teacher, he was a wonderful pastor, but he's not who they were looking for. And John wants to make sure that he introduces John as the forerunner to God's promised Messiah and King. See, the nation of Israel for, for centuries because of God's promise through the prophets, have been looking forward to this anointed one of God, the Messiah, the King, to show up and rescue God's people. That's what they longed for and what they looked for. And by sharing these three verses with us, what John is trying to get his readers to see is that God was keeping his promise concerning this Messiah through the ministry of John the Baptist. If you look at Malachi chapter three, uh, verse one, this is commonly known as like the last book of canon in the Old Testament. And then what, what happened is the nation of Israel entered into what was known as the intertestamental period where God was kind of basically silent with the nation as a whole for a couple hundred years. And so Malachi is kind of like the last prophet before we get to the New Testament where we see God speaking to his people again. And Malachi says this in chapter three, verse one. He says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming says the Lord of hosts. And so what the apostle John is trying to get us to see as he's introducing his gospel to us is he says, hey, John the Baptist is this heralding messenger that the prophet Malachi had promised to God's people hundreds of years ago before the Messiah shows up. And when the Messiah shows up, his glory is going to be before us. He's going to make himself known at the temple that he's going to be the bringer of the covenant that we long for and look for. But before that Messiah shows up, his messenger will go before him. Now, I don't want to spend a ton of time on John the Baptist because we're going to see more about him next week as we continue to look at chapter one. But there's just a few things I want to point out and make clear to us and help us to see as we look at these verses. The first one is this. 
John was sent by God to witness about Jesus. But one of the things he makes clear to, to distinguish for us here is that John was simply a man like any of us in this room. And what this means is, is that God sends people on mission for the glory of Jesus Christ and his renown. This is a call and a reminder to everyone in this room this morning who is a professing follower and disciple of Jesus that you are a sent person and witness of Jesus Christ, just like John the Baptist. If you don't believe me, when you go home today, open up your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. There's a beautiful passage in there. Some of you probably had it memorized, especially if you did Awanas. That, that 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, people just love those verses because it talks about you being a new creation in Christ and then you just love to just ignore everything after that. But, but part of being a new creation in Christ is that you become an ambassador of the ministry and message of reconciliation in Christ Jesus for the world. You are a sent person the moment you place faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And you are called to be a witness just as John the Baptist was. And then the second thing we'll see in these verses is that John the Baptist's example, and we'll learn more about this next week, but his example in that witness was one of humility and making everything about Jesus. You know, he'll say things like, I'm not worthy to even untie the sandals of Jesus. That he walks in humility, that he makes sure that when the crowds gather around him as he preaches, that, he's, that they are not there to see him, they are there to hear about the coming Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Friends, one of the ways that we go wrong in witnessing to others and sharing the gospel is that we make it about us and not about Jesus. I'll have people come to me like, well, I don't, I don't know how to answer this question or I don't, I don't know enough or I don't know this. And, and I'd say like, I think you're, you're too worried about that person's perception of you. If you focus on just witnessing to Jesus and what he's done in your life and the life of others, you will be fine. And John sees such blessing in his ministry because of his humility and his desire to make it all about Jesus. And so the Apostle John introduces us to John the Baptist as the forerunner to the word, to the Logos. Let's start unpacking who the word is in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. I, I wanna stop there and I'm gonna pause for a minute. What, what John's doing here is he's, he's doing a really, really great job as he's introducing Jesus Christ to us of using contextual clues or information to speak to the heartstrings of anyone who's reading this gospel account, right? He refers to Jesus as the word or in the Greek, this word logos. Now, this was a common word or theme or idea in John's day that was used by a variety of cultures, but especially in any culture that had been influenced by Greek thought or philosophy, which in the Mediterranean world was most of the world because of Alexander the Great and the conquest of the Greeks and then Roman influence after the Greeks. And when you, were, when you would unpack this idea of logos or word in Greek philosophy, in most of its usages, Logos was marked by two main distinctions. The first one dealt with human reason. So kind of like the idea of Logos in Greek philosophy was that it, it, it denoted or described the rationality in the human mind that sought to attain universal understanding or harmony. So that's a lot to unpack. So maybe let me try to like simplify it a little bit. 
If you were trying to solve a, a problem or come to a consensus among a community that would benefit the community and lead to harmony and unity and life in that community, the Greeks said that you were pursuing the logos, that you were trying to bring together human understanding to bring about good amongst those people and used reason and logic to kind of unpack that. Now, that was the, the, the rationale or the philosophical side of this idea in Greek thought, but there was also a second idea where the logos was understood to be universal intelligence. It was this idea that there was a universal force governing and, and revealing through the cosmos to humankind kind of why we were the way we were. So the way that the Greeks kind of understood the idea of the logos or the word was that we are all rational human beings capable of thought, right? That famous line, I think, therefore I am. That, that is connected to this idea of the word or logos. But then the idea penetrated deeper inside of Greek thought where it said the reason mankind is able to do that and the reason mankind is different from every other species that walks on the planet is because the divine gave that to human beings so they might be able to do that. And so Greek thought kind of said, they, they didn't necessarily believe in, in, in the, the God of the Bible or they kind of had like this deistic view of God, but they did understand and believe that the Logos was kind of this guiding universal uh, imprint on the DNA of human beings to be able to think rationally and logically through things. Now, because of the influence of Greek thought on Jewish life, there was a group of Jewish uh, believers commonly referred to as the Hellenistic Jews inside of the gospel accounts. And they took this idea of Lagos and they attributed it, it to Yahweh, their God. And what they would say was, is that God's powerful self-expression is shown through this idea of Lagos, that Yahweh was the Lagos who created the universe and oversaw the ruling of the world. And through man, he gave them the opportunity to reason and rule in his image and likeness. Now, here's the beautiful thing. That lines up well with Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, that God created man and woman in his image and likeness to rule and reign as he would using these types of reasoning and understanding according to Greek idea. And so what we're, what we're seeing here is that John is taking this term used by two separate groups and defining for them who this word really is. And in those first three verses, right, we saw John describe the word in a number of ways, right? We see that the word is eternal in verse one and two, that he was from the beginning and he's always existed, we see that the word is with God in the beginning of creation, but that the word also was God. And this is one of the first times that we're gonna to begin to see inside of scripture, the, the teaching that we now understand as Christians thousands of years later of the doctrine of the Trinity, that this word or logos in, in Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two is with God, but that word is also God and that it's speaking the world into existence. And then we saw in verse three that this word is the origin of all things. This word mentioned here in these first three verses of John chapter one are why you sit in this room this morning and breathe and live. That if it were not for this word, you would not exist. John wants us to see that the word is the eternal God who is the origin of all things created, that created mankind and gave us our unique capacity for reason and logic. And in this word, we find our human longing for the supernatural or the transcendent. John is immediately trying to address this need in our human hearts. And I think I want to pause for just a second and make something clear. I think we live in a, in a season, at least in the West, 
where you'll hear people claim there's no such thing as wanting the supernatural or the transcendent anymore, that naturalism is the prevailing thought of mankind. And I would simply just point out two things to you. How many of you have seen a Star Wars movie, a Marvel movie in the last couple of years? Those movies make a ton of money. When little kids want to dress up for something for Halloween, they don't want to dress up as me. They want to dress up as Superman, the Hulk, Wonder Woman, right? Because there's a longing on the human heart that understands that there is something more than ourselves out there. Guys, even this past week on Monday night, for those of you that follow the news at all, there was a tragedy in a Monday night football game. And what was the world doing rallying around that information? Praying. Were they, people that believe, whether they believed in God or not, what were they doing? They were praying because they realized that once something was taken out of their control, they needed something bigger than what was right in front of them. And John's answer to this longing in our hearts is that what we're looking for, that understanding for, for rational reason of where it comes from and, and who, who the divine creator of the universe is, who, who Yahweh is and how he created all things and spoke all things into being in Genesis 1 and 2, that the answer to that question and all other cultures and people on this earth who are looking for why am I here and where did I come from is in the incarnate word of God who is Jesus Christ. He's not just some good guy. He's not just the baby Jesus who Ricky Bobby wants to pray to before he has his meal. No, he is the incarnate word of God made flesh who spoke everything into existence and by him, all things are held together. He goes on to say this in verses four and five. In him was life and the life was the light of men that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John is trying to get us to think deeply here, especially for his Jewish reader. He wants them to understand and see and go back to Genesis chapter one and think about hey, what was all of this like prior to creation? And the answer, if you read Genesis one, is just darkness. If we were to cut off the lights and turn off the sun, what will we experience? Utter darkness. And John says that in the midst of that darkness where there was nothing, in him was life and that life was the light of men. That he spoke it all into existence. And another thing that John is trying to get across here in verses four and five is he's trying to, to present this idea that whether someone is Jewish and knows who Yahweh is or has no idea who the God of the Bible is, that, that by simply looking out on creation and seeing mankind, that the light and life is of, of the creator is in them. And so we can look to mankind and see the image of God in them and therefore know that God exists. That this word, this logos, is, he exists. The doctrine of this is called the Imago Dei, and it's one of the ways that we, at least at Aletheia Church, say that we think all people are born with inherent dignity and value because they bear the image of our Creator. Humans display this truth about the Word of God, whether they want to or not. You know, in one of my sassier moments as a college student, I was debating this atheist in the Free Thinkers Club on my campus. And he thought he had like given me a real zinger and whatever else. And I went to John chapter one and I read these first five verses at him and I just looked at him and I said, it's so beautiful to me that God is so amazing that even as you blaspheme his name, the fact that you live and breathe displays his glory and there is not a thing you can do about it. And I looked at him and said, you matter to God whether you realize it or not. Right? Because in, just in the very reality of human life, we display the light and life who created us. 
You know, these terms light and life were often used by Jews to refer to the wisdom literature and the Torah as well, where wisdom was referred to as the light and the Torah was referred to as life. And John is now saying that the light and life of God's word to his people is now embodied in this logos, in Jesus, that wisdom and life are displayed not just in this reading of the text, but they're actually embodied in the physical being of Jesus. That we don't just read about these ideas, but they're actually embodied in front of us and lived out in this incarnate logos. And then in verse five, he presents to us for the first time that darkness and light are at odds with one another. This war against good and evil is presented and that although the word has created all things, darkness still attempts to push back but the light shines in it and darkness does not win. Foreshadowing to what we'll see in John's gospel about this word and what he's done. And then jump down to verse 14 with me. It's beautiful, right? Look at what he says. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, in one verse, the Apostle John has given us the entire doctrine of the incarnation. Right? What he's saying is, is that God, who is spirit, became human. And this makes Yahweh, the God of the Bible, different than every other world religion, right? Because the God of other religions, they're transcendent, they're above us, and you have to work to appease them and earn their approval. But not Yahweh. Now the Lagos instead became flesh and his glory dwelt among us. John would know that his reader of Jewish descent would know that he's harping back to the Old Testament tabernacle here, that he's referring to the tabernacle where God's glory would appear before Israel in a pillar of fire or a pillar of smoke. And John is saying, in the same way that Moses and our ancestors gathered around the tabernacle to see the glory of God displayed before them, that glory has now fully come in Jesus. We don't need to go to a particular building or a temple or a tabernacle. No, we see it now in Jesus Christ. And I saw that glory with my own eyes. Because God came in the flesh. He goes on to say that this Jesus, this Logos, God in the flesh is superior to all things. Look at what he says. In verse 15, he says that Jesus is superior to John the Baptist. In verses Six, in verse 16, he says that Jesus is superior to the law. And that's kind of a confusing verse there. He says um, that It's grace upon grace, and it it would be hard to understand what he's saying there, especially if you didn't understand how Jews viewed the Old Testament Torah, but the law was God's grace to God's people. And what John is saying here is that the law reveals God to us, and that is his grace, but Jesus fulfills the law and, and reveals God fully to us, so he is grace on top of grace. Then in verse 17, he says that Jesus is superior to Moses because the law came through Moses, but grace and truth about God came through Jesus Christ. As Moses interceded for the Israelites on God's, on on behalf of Israel to God, Jesus is the better intercessor for all of us. And then in verse 18, he says that Jesus made the Father known to us when he was unknown. He says, no one in the history of mankind has seen God, the only God. And yet Jesus 
has made him known to us. To put it quite simply, John is simply saying to us, there is no one like Jesus of Nazareth. And I think it's easy for us, especially if we're Christians, if we've been at church for any extended period of our time, to think about Jesus and say, yeah, we think he's great, but to only think of it in terms of what he's done for us. And what Christ has done for us is certainly amazing, but that's not why he's worthy of our worship. No, John says that Jesus is worthy of our worship and our attention and our affections because there is no one like him and there will never be another like him again. And this is why we believe he is the Christ, the son of God, and that in him we have abundant life because he is God's son in the flesh. And so John presents who John the Baptist is to us so we might properly understand what he came to do. He tells us about Jesus and introduces him as the Logos, the Word made flesh in front of us. And then lastly, in verses 9 through 13, he presents this third group of people called the world. We look at verses 9 and 10, he says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. This, this is just a reiteration of what I had said earlier about general, general revelation. But what we're seeing here is that there is this group called the world, and that he, the Lagos, gave light to everyone, meaning he spoke them into existence, and in him is the Imago Dei, and that he was in the world, and yet the world did not know him, even though they should know him. And here's what John wants us to see. Because we fall in this third category. John actually wrote us into his gospel. He says that the world is humanity, mankind. John brings us in because he wants to show us how the world responds to the Lagos, how the world responds to the word incarnate, how the, wor how the world responds to this light and life. And he says, look at how amazing Jesus is. He's better than Thor. He's better than the Hulk. He's better than your favorite athlete, your favorite author, your favorite world leader, whose people can't hold a candle to the Lagos. And yet look at how the world responds to him. He says there's two camps, rejectors and receivers. It says that the world in verse 10 did not know him. He said that basically what John is saying is that the entire world should have been able to look out on mankind and look at creation, Paul uses this same argument in Romans chapter one to say like, clearly there is a God who spoke all this into existence. Like it, it should just be obvious to us. And that when that Lagos sh shows up, it should be obvious to mankind just be like, yeah, it's definitely this guy. This is definitely it. This is the one that created us. And yet the world did not know him. But then if you go down one more verse to verse 11, it says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. That's referring to the Jewish people. You know, he says that, hey, mankind should have known that when Jesus had, was born, that their creator was here. And they didn't. But even more so, God's people, the Jews, who had been, had God's word revealed to them, who had seen God's blessing who'd been told who Yahweh was and what he had done for them, that when Jesus came to his own people, they just, they not only didn't know him, they rejected him. And as we'll see, they crucify him. And so there's one camp of rejectors. The other camp, verse 12 and 13, 
because there's always a faithful remnant, right? But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That word receive just means they believed that Jesus was who he said he was. They believed in what John says is true about the Lagos. And those that receive him, God gives them new identity, new life. He adopts them into God's family, whether they were Jews or not. And as they're adopted into God's family, they're given a new family. You're experiencing it this morning. The church. In all of its warts and dysfunction, God gives us a family. You know, I was thinking about this the other day because it's, it's in vogue right now to talk about how terrible the church is, and that's because I'm in it, along with you. Together, we make the church a terrible place to be sometimes. But I was thinking about like my own biological family. I love some of them. Some of them I tolerate. But I was thinking about this, like why do families get together? And I was thinking about my own family and it's like, there's usually one person that's the reason why all these people that don't really like being around each other get together. You know, in my family, it's my grandmother. It's like, well, my cousins kind of drive me a little crazy sometimes, and I drive them crazy, but grandma's here. So we're going to get together, and we're going to gather together for the sake of grandma. And it can be dysfunctional, but we're trying to love each other, and we're figuring it out, and we're serving one another, and we're doing things for one another, and it's a mess sometimes, but we figure it out. Guys, that's the church. We just don't get together for grandma. We get together for the Creator. So often, the problems with this family that we've been adopted into by God come from you thinking that the family exists for you. It doesn't exist for you. It exists for him. Right? Francis Chan has this like, famous line, I, I love it, and I'm not uh, popular enough or smart enough to be able to get away with a line like this, but I'll steal his. He said he was finishing up church one Sunday in San Francisco at the church that he was pastoring. And this woman walked up to him and said, Pastor, it's so good to see you. Uh, like, really loved your message, but I just, I just wasn't really feeling worship this morning. It just wasn't my thing. And he looked at her and said, well, that's good because it wasn't for you. We did it for him. Church, God gives us a new family because we are adopted as his children. And we gather together because he is the Christ. Jesus is the son of, his, of God and we believe in his name to receive life. Abundant life. Life now and life forevermore. So the question I ask you this morning is what camp are you in? Rejector or receiver? I lived my life for 20 years thinking I was a receiver when I was in fact a rejector. I believed things about Jesus that I wanted to believe, but the things that I found uncomfortable or unpopular, I just kind of pushed them to the side. I was like, well, that's not the Jesus I want to believe in. They could have stuck me in Talladega Nights if they wanted to. And John says, there is no third way. Right? The same way that C.S. Lewis makes the argument in mere Christianity that Jesus has not presented us with a third option, that he's just a good moral teacher. He's either a liar who is not to be followed because he's led billions of people astray. He's a lunatic who actually thought he was God but wasn't, or he is who he said he was, Lord, God, and King. John's hope 
as he wrote this gospel. My hope as we study it together as the body of Christ is that you would receive Jesus, that you would see him as the fully divine son of God, the author of creation and salvation, the reason you breathe, the sustainer of all things, and the king of the world who is currently ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. He's not just a good teacher. He's not someone who can be bent to your will and and political leanings. We know how I know that? He didn't believe in democracy. He's a monarchist. I love, I love telling people around political season, hey, hey, how are you voting? I'm a monarchist. They look at me like I have 30 heads. It's like, yeah, actually monarchies are great when the king is good. And I have the best king. This Jesus is the incarnate son of God in the flesh. And he's worthy to be worshiped because he is God. The God who died for our sins on the cross at Calvary. I love how Tony Marita puts it. He says, there is infinite value in the cross because there is infinite value in the person who was hanging on it. Right, the cross is, there, do you have any idea how many people the Romans crucified? Their deaths do nothing for you. But because of the person of Jesus Christ, the cross is of infinite value because Jesus is worthy. That same God who died on the cross rose from the dead, forgiving us, freeing us, adopting us, and offering us new life. God has come down to us. We live on the other side of this. This is how beautiful it is, that we live on the other side of this truth. God has come down to us. His glory has dwelt among us, and it's still dwelling at the right hand of the Father. It's in Jesus, and it's in no one else. Do you know him?